0: It's an honour to introduce Julian Savulescu, who is uh, uh, director of the here Centre for Practical Bioethics here in Oxford, ex-Melbourne Uni. Yeah. Yeah. A while ago now, Fellow of Cross. Just to know Julian, the first um, intersected, I suppose, in a practical way quite recently when he said, "What do you know about obesity?" So suddenly you started thinking about uh, obesity and ethics. So. And I think this, for us, is going to be the first uh, exposure to your thinking across that uh, eight months or so. So if you can sort of talk and then frame things, and then we'll stop and have a discussion. That would be that we would go. So just some slides, and then we we'll get into a discussion.
1: OK, thanks, Stanley. Uh, well, I think what I might do is just start off by, by talking about some of the principles about about what ethics is. So. As Sally mentioned, I was applying for a Welcome Senior Investigator Award to look at the area of responsibility in healthcare. Should we hold people who are alcoholics responsible for their illness? Should this mean they have lower priority in terms of healthcare? And one of the areas that's often bundled into this, as well as smoking uh, and, and other diseases, is obesity. And I said, I asked Stanley what, what he knew about obesity, um, and so he probably told me a few things and then said, well, you must go and talk to, to the group. Um, now, the, this grant won't start until um, till July this year. So at the moment, I know nothing about obesity. And I think it would be a waste of your time for me to be talking to you about obesity. So I'm interested to hear uh, from you about about that topic. But what I can sort of talk to you about at this point is is how I think about things and how I think about these sorts of issues and some of the ways in which we approach them. Uh, And and that, of course, will extend to issues around responsibility and obesity. But I don't want to get into the detail of of that because, you know, you're the experts and, and I'm aware that I'm coming here knowing very little. So, as a way into this, I thought I would briefly talk about a news story yesterday that I was asked to talk on BBC World Service. They eventually dumped me because I think I didn't say anything interesting or provocative enough. Um, but it raises some of, some of the issues. Just before I start, ethics is about constructing arguments about what we ought to do. Um, so I, I come across this misunderstanding of, of what ethics is uh, in, in a lot of areas in science. And I, I don't know so much about anthropology, but... And many people think that you know ethical answers immediately fall out of scientific research, but it's important to realise that these are complete, two completely different realms of inquiry. Science and anthropology is about the way the world is, the way the world was, the way the world will be. It's about causal wars. So whenever you see words like is, was, will be, could be, would be, these are to do with with science and the empirical world. And there are various kinds of science. I I count history as a form of science. But then there's a completely different realm about how the world ought to be, should be, would be, should should be what's good, bad, what's right, wrong, these sorts of issues. And the relationship between these two is interesting but complex. And questions about ethics don't immediately uh, fall out of an understanding of the science. So I'm going to talk about how we make decisions about what we ought to do, and for that you require values or principles, things that we think we ought to aim for, concepts like responsibility. So the theme of this talk is responsibility uh, for illness and moral responsibility. So again, responsibility is a word that has two meanings. One is causal responsibility. What is the part which you play within a causal network? Or, for example, a disease like condition like obesity or schizophrenia, what are the relative contributions of biology, society, your choices and so on? That's about the causal genesis of a particular state. That's a scientific question. Moral responsibility is different. Moral responsibility is the part which you've played which is amenable to praise and blame, so-called reactive attitudes. So moral responsibility for an outcome is a function of two major characteristics. states dates back to Aristotle. A knowledge criterion and a control criterion. So to be responsible for some outcome requires that you could foresee that outcome as a consequence of either your act or your omission. So the the more foreseeable it was, the more likely it was, the more responsible you are. And the second one is how avoidable that outcome was. So whether you had control over your actions. So if the only action open to you is one, uh, then you're not responsible for the outcome. But when you have a choice, and the degree to which you have control or choice affects the responsibility for that outcome. Blame is a function of the degree to which you're morally responsible okay, and the degree of harm that results. So the more morally responsible, the more blameworthy, the more harmful, your action or omission, the more blameworthy. So that's a, that's a little bit of sort of background around responsibility. Uh, another principle that um, governs a lot of society is that... The People ought to internalise the costs of their behaviour. So, you know, if I... Um, I just went skiing last last week. Now, if I choose to go skiing and and, uh, and break my leg, uh, I ought to be the one who pays for the helicopter, not you. Because um, I'm one of the chose, knowing that there's a risk. So I'm morally responsible for my broken leg as well as causally responsible, and so I want to internalise the cost of that behaviour. Now, I just want to look at that in the context of various sort of lifestyle choices. So often people describe obesity as a lifestyle disease. Um, So, because I'd rather take something that (laughs) you're less familiar with, we can sort of maybe discuss it in terms of these ethical principles. Um, This story came up yesterday, I think, in The Guardian and was on the news. So, this concerns um, a group of, of uh, men who have sex with men uh, who engage in high-risk sexual practices. So, um, if you look at the, the, the page called True Barta, um NHS England is considering whether to fund a drug which acts to prevent HIV infection when taken regularly. A recent study has shown that the drug has been effective amongst high-risk groups. Uh, in in a real-world setting. That is, not only does the drug itself work effectively, but the trial participants given the drug took it with sufficient regularity over the year that the rate of new HIV infections was considerably reduced. Over the year, there were 19 new HIV infections in the treated group compared... Sorry, in the control group compared with three in the treated group. So the question that is now, should the NHS fund this drug to prevent Uh, HIV. So the the cost is around £360 per month and there are about 15,000 people in this category. Um, So part of the discussion is around whether this is going to be cost effective uh, compared to alternatives. But there are ethical questions around whether the NHS ought to fund such a drug, even if it were cost effective. Um, So Clearly, there is a very effective, very cheap alternative, the use of condoms and protected sex or abstinence as a way of preventing the transmission of HIV. So should the NHS pay for the choices of people who have a much more cost-effective alternative available? And the second question they asked me on the you know, on the sort of brief to the news thing is, would this set of long encourage worse behaviour and so on? And that comes into the cost effectiveness of the behaviour. But what are your thoughts about this kind of lifestyle disease? Do you think that the NHS ought to fund true barter? So ethics, again, is about giving reasons. So I can tell you all the data. I mean, let's assume that it turns out after crunching the numbers that this is cost effective in terms of the current status quo and the treatment of, of AIDS. So it reduces the number of people who develop HIV sufficiently such that the savings in terms of uh, antiretrovirals um, outweighs the costs of providing this, this prophylactic treatment. Um, do you think then we ought to provide it?
0: There was a parallel recently
1: on um, a television program that was arguing the case
0: for well, bariatric surgery for obesity and it was cost effective because it would save,
1: you know, future
0: that, medical that going to be my next example.
1: But, yeah. No, I, I wanted to talk about bariatric surgery. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, this is another case where people exactly in this panel say, well, you can of course choose not to eat or you can choose to lose weight, or you can choose to engage in some sort of dietary reform, why should the NHS provide bariatric surgery when you could choose an option that is much cheaper for the NHS that's available to you? Now, part of the answer to this is whether people have control. As I said, we have, we have the knowledge, we know that if we diet or if we use a condom Uh, then it will have certain effects but the question is to what degree do people have voluntary control over these that will be a topic of the grant that I'm very interested in I'm very interested in the degree to which we have free will but I don't have a clear answer except my intuition at this point Uh,
2: Do you take into account history so when you're thinking about um, degree of responsibility um, or, or knowledge and things like that for example do you look at people as if behaving from today onwards or do you look at the history of say HIV risk groups and the discrimination against, the long history of discrimination against say men who have sex with men, which has meant that there's a higher proportion of HIV patients who are in that subgroup already?
1: Um, kind of a, yeah, coming, so that's a very good point. So again justice sometimes requires taking into consideration the origin of the, of the state of affairs. So it may be that people have entitlements to a greater share of resources now than they would otherwise have had because of past injustice or past practices. That's, in the climate change debate, that's a, a big argument around how much carbon different countries should be allowed to emit now. There's one little bit, there's one little bit there. <clears throat> So that, that, so that's a good example of just simply knowing the facts doesn't answer the ethical question yet. I'm
2: just wondering, where do you draw the line between personal blame or personal uh, what was the term uh, control and things that are outside of personal control? So if you're, in the case of obesity, we were talking about it this morning, if you're in an area where you know, nutrient-dense foods aren't necessarily available, but there's energy-dense foods available, um, how much is that your personal control uh, versus something that's just purely environmental or there are other uh, mechanisms in place that prevent you from
1: uh, having access to those things Absolutely. I mean I, I think that's correct and in fact we're applying to extend this grant from individual responsibility to collective responsibility um, but in order to answer that question you, you need you need to, to understand the contribution of the individual and the and the, the society or the group or the environment that that individual lives in. And I'll tell you how it's done now, and that is basically to ignore responsibility altogether. So the NHS doesn't use any criterion of responsibility, moral responsibility, and partly for this reason. It's difficult to, to disentangle the degree to which an individual is responsible or isn't. And there's another reason that, once you start to require people within a public health system to internalise the cost of their behaviour, um, there's a risk of doing that in an arbitrary way. So it's very easy to see whether somebody is smoking a cigarette, or how many cigarettes they smoke, or how many calories they take in a day, or what their weight is. It's very difficult to evaluate whether somebody's compliant with their medication, whether they're engaging in other healthy or unhealthy behaviours. Uh, how risky their sex is, and so on. So it, becomes, it risks singling out certain sorts of groups. And the other reason is because of um, the basic principle of the liberal society, that we all ought to be free within reasonable realms to form and act on our own conception of the good life, so, so-called liberal neutrality. And, and that means that requires resources, and people have a fair degree of freedom... To choose, like as I said, I just went skiing last week, and if I had broken my, in fact, I have broken my leg in the past before. The NHS will repair it, and because I'm not liable for the full cost of that, um, it gives me the freedom to engage in that activity. But once you made people, in a very fine-grained way, internalising the cost of all their behaviours, you would narrow the range of lives open to people. So that's another political reason for. For eschewing judgments about responsibility. So in the case of smoking, so again, ethics is about trying to find arguments that have traction with people according to principles or practices that they already accept. Okay? You can also argue about ethics by appealing to a grand principle or theory or religion, saying, you know, Christianity says the right thing to do is this, or utilitarianism says we should maximize happiness, or Virtue ethics said we do what the virtuous person does. or can says we should you know, have to put in the maximum that we could build as a universal imperative. But the most convincing thing in everyday life, and I'll show you an article after this, is to appeal to things that people already accept. So look at smoking. The NHS spends money, a lot of money, on anti-smoking campaigns and uh, various measures to induce people, persuade people to, to stop smoking. And that costs resources. But in fact, smoking anti-smoking advice by GP, GPs is said to be one of the most cost-effective forms of medical intervention. But you might ask the question, in exactly the same way as here, why, when people know the risks of smoking a day and it's their choice, are we spending even that amount of money providing these services? And the reason is, that the NHS doesn't take into account responsibility. It just looks at what overall will maximally improve public health and what's most cost effective. So if your GP spending five minutes with you telling you to stop smoking, providing nicotine replacement therapy or whatever is effective, that's what GP's ought to do. So if you follow that line of reasoning to this, you want to provide the true barter if it's cost effective even though people will have the tendency in this case to say, oh, but it's their behaviour and choice to expose themselves to it. And they have a real alternative, the use of condoms. So what, what I'm trying to say is if you try to extract the principles, one of the, the most basic ethical approaches is to treat like cases alike. That's Aristotle's principle of equality. So if you accept we should provide anti-smoking advice as a part of public health, then... You True VADA, if it's cost-effective, ought to be provided to high-risk homosexuals. That's the structure of the idea. Yeah. Is there a risk of falling into
0: offering a choice of moralities? Because if you say you should be able to act on notions of the good life, you can construct that in so many different ways. It could be taking crack with pain day and night. At, at, an, at one
1: extreme. I mean, the the, the sort of basic... Principle of liberal society is that provided you're not harming other people through your choice of the of the good life, harm to self is never a reason for coercion. So in this case, coercion um, would take the form of not offering certain kinds of treatments. Now you could say, look, in this case, you know, if these guys really want to engage in this behaviour when they have alternatives that maybe the state should fund, they should pay for that. They should pay the £365 a month. But if you if you believe that, then you should also believe that people should pay for their own anti-smoking kind of um, programs. And so the extension of bariatric surgery, as you just mentioned, is that if bariatric surgery is more cost-effective than attempted diet or whatever the other alternatives for weight loss are, then we ought to provide it. <laughs> because overall it will promote public health. And the fact that whether people are or aren't able to control it is irrelevant to, on, on this argument. Now, I'm not saying this is the right principle. I'm saying this is the consistent approach. So if you accept anti-smoking campaigns and true bar of uh, high-risk homosexuals, you ought to offer bariatric surgery to people who are obese. It's cost-effective, but there's one of the back. Yeah? Right,
2: so I
1: Is an empirical argument for you. So what you're saying is, in the long term, um, the kinds of primary prevention and population-level education programs, behavioural change, are going to be more cost-effective. It's just that we take this single time slice of the measurement of the cost-effectiveness of Well, that, if that's correct, you're, if you're correct, <laughs> but we're not dis- disagreeing about any fundamental principle here. It's a disagreement about the facts. And I, no. if, it's, if that, if those are the facts, then then you're right. It's and like I agree. And again, another thing about ethics is that time makes no moral difference. So this is what's called the principle of temporal neutrality. If you you know, it, it doesn't matter whether a harm occurs now or in ten years. If it's certain to occur in ten years, it's equally bad. And so you should take as long a time view as you can can take. And, and count all of those harms and benefits in that calculation. And you might say, that's so obvious. You know, how, what, who would disagree with that? Um, but first of all, there's a principle of temporal discounting that economists use, even apart from uncertainty, which is completely inconsistent with, with sort of the ethical principle that if you suffer tomorrow, you know, a, a toothache, it's as bad as if you suffer it today. And I'll give you an example that I've been writing on. Just, I'm just trying to show how once you start to scratch below the surface of many sort of accepted debates, um, <laughs> it becomes much more complicated. This principle of temporal neutrality and the, and the importance of future harm um, is not, I believe, adequately taken into account around um, prenatal decisions around uh, place of birth and uh, interventions in pregnancy. So another ca- kind of case that I'm writing on is in parts, of, the, in parts of, of, of Australia, the rates of alcohol abuse amongst um, pregnant women, and in this case they're typically aborigines, is 20% of children born have fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, now, many people believe that, uh, you know, we shouldn't intervene in uh, maternal behaviour um, even when it seriously risks the fetus, this has been different in some parts of the U.S. at some points in time. But in general, there's there's a view because the fetus is not a person and doesn't have a moral status, and that's what grounds the, you know the permissibility of abortion. We shouldn't intervene, okay, to stop that kind of behaviour. But in the
0: U.S., you've had women who've been incarcerated yep. because yep. they were thinking about yep. getting pregnant. Yep. pregnant. Yeah,
1: they're, they're, that's certainly true. There have been mixtures of decisions. But in the UK, there's certainly been a number of influential judgments that said, you can't do a caesarean section on a woman without her consent, even if the foetus is going to be damaged as a result of, of delaying delivery. delivery. Okay. So you're exactly right. There's a mixture of decisions. But in general, in Australia and the UK, there's, there's a very strong belief in, in maternal autonomy, which autonomy is a very important thing. But I just said before, you're not free to harm other people. So now go into a different sort of case. Say you've got a three-year-old child, and you, or say you've got a baby, and the baby is crying relentlessly. There is no justification for shaking the baby such that there'll be a 20% chance of causing permanent brain damage. Um, now, in the, in the fetal alcohol case, the harm is just manifest, you know, one, three, five years later. But it, according to a principle of temperate neutrality, that's just like somebody harming a child at that point. So if you accept temporal ch- neutrality, you should actually be intervening in these cases and you should be requiring cesarean sections if if it's necessary to prevent permanent disability in a child, just as you would do something. Now, obviously, cesarean section is based is, is, is different issues. I'm just trying to show that, that even these simple principles actually have implications for practices and, and often laws. So, in my view, the kind of laws that we have around... Um, fetal harm, not abortion, but long-term infliction of disability, are inconsistent with, with a number of ethical principles. Um, but let me get back to to, um, to bariatric surgery. You know, on, on this view, responsibility is irrelevant. Um, and, you know, I was talking to, to Stanley about this issue in the... Um, in our discussion previously, for any, for any present state of an organism or uh, or the world, there are essentially four possible routes of causation, okay? There is natural events. There are social events, there are psychological events and there are biological events, okay? So, typically, so how much of mental illness is social, how much of it is biological? And trying to disentangle the contribution of genes. And so with obesity. How much of it is social, how much of it is, is genetic, and so on. And that's interesting in terms of causation. But in terms of, this is, if you've got a state and you want to move to a second state, so say you've got an obese individual and you want to lose weight, or an addicted individual and you want them to give up, It's interesting to know what the causation, causal history of the present state is because it will suggest potentially effective interventions. But it doesn't determine what will be most effective. So something can be socially caused and a biological intervention be the most effective. Or something can be biologically caused and a social intervention be the most effective. Or something can be freely chosen but a biological intervention be the most effective. Um, So what... and again, there are four ways of intervening in any state. Biological, psychological, social or natural affecting the natural environment. So which of those you choose is an ethical question based on perhaps the past and requirements of justice, perhaps the cost effectiveness, perhaps the values of the individual who who will be affected by that, um, and various other ethical considerations. And you have to weigh which of those four interventions you choose. So the principle around bariatric surgery and smoking advice and so on is that you ignore the causal history, and you simply choose the most cost-effective um, mechanism to, to alter that state to a more desirable one. So that's um, that's why. Is that reasonably clear? So you know, in, in, I don't have an ethical answers. I don't know whether we should be providing bariatric surgery or not. And and, and in fact, I don't, I'm not really interested in in in, in state answers. What I'm interested in is how we think about making decisions in better ways. Um, can I ask you, because I think this is a very good piece of um, of popular philosophy, to read the second piece by Project Syndicate, by my supervisor, who in my view is, is the best philosopher working in practical ethics, Peter Singer. Because he did weigh into this debate on uh, obesity in a provocative... Oh, sorry, you had a question for you.
2: And behavior because the way you talk about it, um, it it seems that probably the understanding of behavior is this western psychological individualist kind of idea that you are ultimately in control and you do your own thing and all that kind of thing but i suppose anthropologically we also talk about behavior being things like relational and social and and people have habits because because of the cultural setting in there and the cultural history that they have in them. And I was wondering, kind of, some of
1: these terms, so behaviour, for example, what is it in, in, in terms? Yes, but well, this isn't a particular... But I think you're, you're exactly right. Often people use the same word in different disciplines in completely different ways, and, and that it, there's a lot of cross-talking. Um, by behaviour, I, I simply meant the sort of folk understanding of, of bodily movements and what you do. That, you know, so when, when we said, we you know, what's the, you know behaviour of the child, it's, you know, he or she, she, I think, is playing, you know, that's, so, it, it, that's, it but people, but many terms, many terms have a mixed non-normative or descriptive sense, so I just gave you a non-normative, descriptive sense, and a normative sense, so people will, will, many words have different meanings, and some of them are partly normative, so when you talk about behaviour in that sense, it, it's involving more normative considerations, um, it is important to get the words. Yeah.
2: What about the clashes between politics and ethics? I mean, uh, I
1: mean, we're thinking that we have to take the best decision between they can, and obviously, cost, cost benefits. what about when there is conflicts between interests and uh, economic and political. Yeah, I mean, s- you know, t- democracy is is is. is the the best system we've arrived at, and that doesn't arrive at ethical outcomes. Um, you know, it actually is very poorly designed to deliver ethical outcomes. I mean, if you look at the structure of of the political system, if you're trying to plan for very long term events like climate change in the period of 50, 100 years time. That involve other people, and so on. A three-year political cycle is, is simply not going to be amenable to making decisions that require sacrifices of individuals now for benefits to the people in the future. So there's many, many conflicts between what politics allows and what you know ethics. So I was just involved again in another contemporary debate, just to give you an example of how low the bar is of public ethics. This, some of you, I think yesterday, the day before, there was the final House of Lords. Vote on this three-person IVF and mitochondrial transfer. Okay. Now I don't want to. St- I, do. You, can I tell you <laughs> what's wrong with the public debate when you want to return to responsibility? This is a good example of the, polit- the, the, the sort of tension between ethics and politics. Mitochondrial transfer. Mo- mitochondrial disease is a disease that affects um, children from a, a mild to profound way, leading to early death in the first year, profound muscle weakness, heart disease, and so. Forth. There is a procedure now where you could take, and, and women pass it on because women um, women pass on the mitochondria. These are power packs which were originally bacteria sequestered by cells um, to provide energy. In mitochondrial disease, these power packs don't work. Okay, so mitochondrial transfer is taking a, um, an egg from a woman who is has carries this disease and extracting the nucleus. DNA, and implanting it into a nucleated egg from a donor woman. So you've got the nucleus with the nuclear DNA from Mary, who's got the mitochondrial disease, and healthy mitochondria from, from another woman. Okay, And so this provides a mitochondrial transplant to every single cell in the body, because it's done prior to conception. You then inject a the sperm, you create an embryo, and so on. So, this raises no ethical issues. <laughs> no. <laughs> And there's been, there's been seven years of debate, numerous inquiries, the Nuffle Council produced a report two years ago. There were you know um, briefings of the House House. The church has vigorously opposed this. And it says one of its reasons for opposing it is that it destroys embryos. It doesn't destroy embryos, because you take an egg. <laughs> it's prior using the, the, the technique that they want to use in, in Newcastle, prior to forming an embryo. They also claim that it's three-person IVF. Well, it's not because the characteristics of the child will be a mixture of the two parents, and exactly like you're a mixture of your two parents. The mitochondria code for nothing apart from the energy, you know, metabolism of the of the cell. So it's very misleading to describe a street person IVF. So he hit, and the point is that, that this is the UK is the only country in the world to legalise this what is effectively microtransplantation. Microtransplantation, completely curative and passed on to the next generation. Completely ethically unproblematic to anyone who, you know, has had a background in ethics who doesn't have some particularly narrow um, perspective. Yet, it's been extremely politically difficult. I had to write a briefing to the House of Commons, a briefing to the House of Lords, numerous reports, all and it just got through. And it's the only place in the world. Why is that? Because politics is, is, is poorly geared towards generating, I mean this is really just a, just transplantation medicine at a microscopic scale um, but it's very difficult so sorry I just will rant. I think, did, now have you had a look at Project Syndicate? Way more pay more. What do you think um, about Peter's argument here? So can, it, can someone summarise his argument for those of you who don't have a copy or, um, or haven't read it? or are occupied. <laughs> I'll summarise it. Then. Obesity is linked
0: to climate change. David King, UK chief scientific officer said in 2007.
1: So that's one part of his argument. Um, the, the main argument is that um, we ought to pay according to our weight on airline travel. okay? Not just our bag weight, but our body weight. Okay, So this is an example of internalising the costs um, that you're imposing on others. Okay. So his argument is that instead of weighing your luggage, we should all have a total weight allowance that includes weight and baggage, and people should be weighed before they go on to... Uh Do you think that this is unjust or discriminatory? Is it? Yep. Um,
2: I feel like it. It selectively ignores some evidence that's out there in order to make an
1: argument. So what? What evidence is? Sorry, you had a question. Earlier. Yeah.
3: Well, I was a little bit earlier. I don't want to get us off track before focusing on. I'll oh, we'll just come back to it on once. Yeah, we we'll can come back to it later. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So
1: yeah. You, but what arguments is it ignoring? Um, so, for example, I mean, the field site where I
2: worked, when I worked in Ireland, which has had, had one of the highest rates of obesity in the world. Um, they've got a long history of colonial exploitation. There are a few kind of dodgy deals done amongst different investment groups at different times, and there's a long history of kind of um, probably not not necessary to go into here, but. Um, now they have a situation where they are they have extremely complex trade relationships with places like Australia, which can ship cheap meat cuts that are illegal to sell in Australia to the Pacific Islands to sell, for example, um, and they're required to sign up to these in order to receive things like Australian aid um, because it's it's necessary for kind of Australian politics. And I was in NARA at a time when an article was released suggesting that Pacific Island uh, people who are obese contribute disproportionately more to climate change and to global warming and and included a comment about airplanes and people kind of said at the time, well, you know, look at this, we're now the fattest nation in the world, we don't have access to good quality foods, we're trying our best to, to eat a good diet. they they have very low incomes and can't afford to bring in anything more and um, and now to access anywhere else in the world and then being told we need to pay more for you know they don't even have a power
1: station on the island. So, okay, I, so I feel like in some context good, so this you,
2: is a difficult issue to then
1: universal. You know, Okay, so your your argument, and let's just stick with the plane travel, but it applies to climate change. Your your argument is that a Nauruan could say, "I'm not responsible for you know my I'm not morally responsible for my weight because I had no control. You know, my for various reasons, you know, I've been put in a situation where you know my my weight is is this. How do you think? So one of the things with ethics is. Try to think what somebody who takes a different position to you would respond. So what do you think that, that Peter Singer's response would be to your to your objection? I don't know, I think I should frame
2: my objection more in terms of it's more complicated and I feel like a lot of that complexity is not included in his particular argument. So I'm not necessarily disagreeing with him green, right. but I'm saying would his argument change if he included more diverse forms of, of, of information? For example, the evidence about how Dis- uh, disproportionately affects lower, um, people from lower socioeconomic economic classes. Is this a form of discrimination? Does just have to reinforce discrimination that's already inherent in the system? Um, so I'm not necessarily agreeing or disagreeing, but I'm just wondering, how, can he just choose to ignore that kind of evidence, or does it change his position if he includes different forms of evidence? It is a very
0: simple and stripped-down issue
1: it, it, it's just a bit, that it is just a newspaper article. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. but, yeah. but yeah, keep going.
3: Yeah. But, but I think what follows from a discussion of inequalities is ultimately responsibility. Mm-hmm. So the way you're characterizing it is saying that's all very useful information. Um, it bears upon what you see to be your relationship with responsibility of the issue. right? So I'm not sure, I totally accept what you're saying, Amy, but I think... Ultimately, it does relate to responsibility, right? So I'm not sure it's helpful just to say there's all sorts of complexity. How are you going to take that into account? You say, well, you're saying your argument is that that complexity informs responsibility. And his argument obviously rests on the fact that they are, to a large extent, responsible. So so you could reject his argument by saying, basically, I have enough evidence to demonstrate a lack of responsibility. Therefore, your argument is founded upon... An assumption of responsibility that It just but, isn't
1: right. But, uh, okay, but uh, so, but what do you think his response to this would be? Based on, I mean, I, I agree. This this might be one way to go. But what do, you, what do you think he would say if you said, look, you're not taking into account the degrees of responsibility and the complexity of the situation. He has this statement here, uh, and I only read this pretty quickly. Um, this isn't a syntax. So you're not publishing. You're not punishing somebody for uh, being responsible or blameworthy um, in the way that you would be, he says, if you did this at the healthcare system level. So if he said, we're going to give you less priority uh, for your medical treatment because you're, you're responsible for it, um, that would be um, taking into account responsibility. That's not what's done by the healthcare system. And he says, health is a basic human right and we shouldn't take it. He says, air travel is a luxury. OK, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not that you have a right to travel, it's, you know, we all get on the plane together, we pay money to travel, and Qantas or whoever can charge us, you know, whatever is reasonable, and if they decided to introduce this kind of weight tax, it wouldn't be unjust because it's not like healthcare, it's air travel. So that, I think, was an interesting distinction that he made that, that, that separates this from the priority in healthcare It raises another interesting question for me in terms of, I mean, again, Pacific Islands,
2: they're obviously being impacted faster than anywhere else in the world in terms of climate change, yet it's mainly the people who are privileged and who can afford air travel who have contributed more to, say, global warming in terms of air travel than Pacific Island people have. So, in that situation, you then have intersecting questions of ethics, not just about obesity, but um, but about responsibility for climate change more broadly that
1: also isn't considered in these kinds of debates. Yeah, and, and, and so I'll come to you just, just let me respond to that. I think the weakness in this, this argument, I, in, insofar as he's talking about the charges an airline can, can levy, I think it's right. But he then goes on to talk about climate change, where I think your arguments are correct to say, well, I'm, you know, you can't blame me for my contribution to climate change just as you can't blame me for my contribution to disease because that's not something that was, you know, reasonably within my control. And likewise, public transport. He even goes on to say, well, you know, if you're obese, you take out more space on public transport. The public transport, arguably, is a sort of public good that you, you're entitled to, unlike air travel. So I think, the, and this is very interesting. It starts off with a very, I think, in my view, at least private-facing plausible argument, but then extends it to climate change, public transport, etc., cetera, saying your weight is yeah you know, something like uh, everybody everyone's business. And so it's a sort of it's a big jump between pre- between those two stages of the argument. Yep. Um I don't know something else can I say I kind of uh, come up with my own counter
2: But I was just thinking he's not being very consistent in the case where should then a smaller person than him pay less? Should someone who's got smaller feet than another pay less of a shoes because they're be using less material? Is someone who's more likely in rent and fine
1: more to take it on a he does say if you're smaller, you should pay less. I think. Yeah. Basically, could he could
2: be applied to all parts of society where based on small choices about making, actually like using different amounts of resources. I might eat smaller meals than him, which is therefore to society,
1: yeah, so I, I think that's again—it it raises this question of the, of a, it's sort of an arbitrary line, as yeah, saying so we're just going to look at this rather than all relevant choices in society. It just isn't a sort of an aside. In Brazil, when I was there, you pay by the weight of your meal. I, know, I think I was in Brazil, you put this plate on, you just pay according to how much. And same with Korea, I think, and um, all least Eastern Europe. Is it it's the right? Is a right? Right. Yeah. So um, clearly that. Um, you know, weight is partly genetically determined. If you're six foot ten, you're going to weigh more than somebody who's five foot one. Um, So this very simple um, kind of approach is, as you've said, too simplistic. But on the other hand, when you drive your car, you pay for the amount of petrol according to what you weigh. Okay. see so if you weigh more, you'll use more petrol, then you'll have to buy more petrol. So he could plausibly respond and say, look, it's just like driving a car, except Qantas is running this very big car that we're all getting into, and why should you know, one person who would otherwise use more petrol be subsidised by another? Um, if this is just a private exchange. There's nothing wrong with making people pay just as they have to pay when they use their car. It's not like it might be the train or the hospital where you know, it's fundamental to our conception of the good life and these
3: various things. So this actually connects really well with what my question was a little while back and that is that it seems that we're discussing these in this ethical framework but it seems that ultimately it's an arbitrary decision that the dollar or British pound amount is is the bottom line upon which we're making these decisions. So for example the NHS you said they're not very sophisticated in um, ethical arguments. And that's because we don't want to have the ethical argument. We can all agree sort of objectively on the importance of cost-effective care. So I found actually the example of Truvada as potentially low-hanging fruit in the sense that if it's the case that Truvada is cost-effective, we've already agreed that we're going to fund cost-effective treatments. I'd be quite interested to see what you think about say, a treatment that wasn't very cost-effective, say, relative to condoms and all the alternatives, and then would there be some moral arguments for actually still funding them? And in the case of, say, um, the the airplane example as well, we're discussing as if the bottom line is simply how much it costs the airline. That's what we're agreeing fundamentally is the most important. But I'm trying to say, with um, responsibility and control, actually, we're not necessarily always going to defer to the, the dollar amount bottom line. And actually, we do require some sense of responsibility and control back into the um, moral calculus. So, for example, if, you, if it's the case that you're not able to control your weight, then it would be unjust to charge you for an amount relative to how much you weigh. Only those things which you're responsible for, which is your baggage, that you're able to control are those things which are subject to being um, basically priced.
1: (coughs) Okay, let me just say one thing about the cost-ineffective intervention. So the basic principle of the NHS is what's called egalitarianism. It's equal treatment for equal need. So here are two, you know, contrasting major ethical theories, egalitarianism and utilitarianism. Utilitarianism says choose that course of action which produces the more utility, the greatest benefits that's most cost effective, essentially. So, although the stated principle of the NHS is egalitarian, in practice it's utilitarian. That's what, I don't know if you've heard of quality adjusted life years Mm -hmm. and evaluations of cost effectiveness involved. That's essentially utilitarianism. Now, many people think that you should trade cost effectiveness for equality. Okay, so one consideration should be, prior justice or, or inequality. I'll give you an, another example of how difficult these decisions really are in practice. Because the thing about cost within the NHS is that cost equals lives. If you have a disease that costs $100,000 and 10 other people have diseases that cost $10,000 and you only have 100,000, it's 10 or 1. And when you say to people, well, you know, there's a, there's a boat overturn and you can rescue 10 people, or you can rescue one, people, one person, 99% say you should rescue the 10, we just did this survey. And in fact, that's, that's essentially what cost equates to in a, in a limited budget within a National Health Service. Um, so that's why it's very, very utilitarian, because it, it, it translates into major outcomes in quality or quantity or length of life. But here's, a, here's the sort of really difficult case for your commitment to equality. Um, about 10 years ago I was asked to write an editorial for the BMJ on, um, on a, a set of complaints brought by the parents of children with Down Syndrome against the Royal Brompton Hospital for discrimination. And they claimed that their children were being discriminated against because they weren't getting care that children without Down Syndrome would get. Now what sort of care weren't they getting? Cardiac surgery. And it's true that the Brompton Hospital had the resources to provide cardiac surgery, and a part of Down syndrome we often have cardiac abnormalities like hole in the heart. So those holes weren't repaired, and that is discriminate, discrimination. Discrimination is treating like cases unlike, treating them differently without a relevant moral difference. Okay. But what was also a, a feature of this was the reasoning of the doctors. They said that. Children with Down syndrome, in addition to the heart heart abnormalities and intellectual disability, will also get early onset Alzheimer's disease, causing profound dementia in the 40s and and early 50s, at a time when their parents are dying and that they would need institutionalisation. And they said, we think it's better that they die in their 30s of their cardiac disease than be institutionalised in their 40s and 50s. Now, that used to be a kind of common thought in up until, say, the 70s or 80s, but it's no longer seen to be a, 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 you know, a reasonable evaluation of quality of life and judgments about value of life. And so the report came down very heavily against the doctors for this sort of reasoning. But the, what I pointed out is that while all that may be correct, that they were discriminatory, that they were making you know, unjust decisions about life and death based on quality of life. There are cases where we do this all the time, and many people support it, and, and this is children. There's only enough hearts for two-thirds of children who need a heart transplant. So you have an allocation decision. Okay. Now, children with Down syndrome, certainly in Australia, I'm not sure about the UK now, but certainly when I was writing this, terms, never get a heart transplant. Because if you transplant a child with Down syndrome, a child without Down syndrome will die of heart failure. You know that. If you really believe in equality and egalitarianism, they should have an equal chance. And if you thought that, you should also think that children with trisomy 18, which is a much more severe congenital condition, chromosomal abnormality, than Down syndrome, who die usually in the first year, but only live 10 years, have worse intellectual disability, have cardiac fat, they also need a heart transplant.
3: (coughs) So they should also get an equal chance. And people
1: find it very difficult in these cases and in fact, doctors don't commit to equality. Likewise, when you talk about responsibility, you might say, well, people aren't responsible for their illness. But when you get people who have uh, been addicts, they will be given a lower priority if, in, in terms of, say, we had a case when I, I used to be a doctor. We had a, a case of a, um, a cocaine addict who was given a heart transplant and continued to use from cocaine, cardiomyopathy given a heart transplant, continue to use cocaine, develop cardiomyopathy again, and just was placed on the waiting list and never received a heart transplant, you know, even when, when one was compatible and available. I, mean, I wasn't responsible for that, but I'm just saying that, in fact, just like the Down syndrome case, and I'm sure it's the case with obesity, in practice, people take their perceptions of responsibility into account, just as they take their perceptions of quality of life and value of life into account. So, it's true that the most cost-effective option should not always be chosen. Perhaps we ought to take responsibility. Perhaps we ought to take equality. Perhaps we ought to take dependence. Another case is: you know, what happens if you've got two people, both of them need an organ, both of them need a procedure. One has three children; one doesn't. Three children's welfare is partly dependent on the health of the of the caregiver. That's not taken into account on paper, but in practice, it is. Oh, sorry. So let me, um, let me just summarise. I haven't got to the last paper on blame. Dan Callahan makes a very even more provocative claim that we ought to blame people um, with, with obesity for being overweight as a way of changing their behaviour. This caused a huge amount of controversy. Again, I don't agree with it, but I thought I'd give it to you just as an example of some of the things that, that are out in the sort of bioethics literature. Um, I hope you've just taken away one thing, and that is when it comes to questions about what we ought to do to try to think across to other relevant practices and examples and principles and try to think about how people who object to your initial view might respond and try to think for yourself more about what your ethical position is, because in the end it's about about what it is to be a professional, is to form your own ethical judgments. And these don't just fall out easily out of a simple commitment to say we ought to treat everyone equally or we ought to pick the most cost-effective option or people ought to be responsible for the cost of their choices. And in each of these cases, it requires a lot of thought and comparison and integration of other principles. And, and ultimately, there's a, a range of justifiable answers. I mean, you might disagree with Peter's view in this. But he is, you know, one of the most sort of significant thinkers and it is at least a position, you know, worthy of engagement. So I hope you've
3: got a little sense of how anthropology might be (laughs) different to, to ethics. Thank you.